It's the night before A-Level Biology, paper one. So what are you going to do? You're going to listen to this podcast for a last minute hyper cram. Hey everybody, it's Jono from Seneca. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We are going to be covering um, a bunch of stuff that's going to be coming up on Biology A-Level, paper one. So we're, we're talking carbohydrates, biological molecules, hyper flashcards. I'm doing a protein hyper cram, maybe some digestion, ooh, and maybe some mutations, adaptations. We'll go over some one to two mark questions as well. It's going to be fine. And then, of course, um, it wouldn't be a night before a podcast without a nice little um, stress buster, and it's the cat guide to reducing exam stress. So it's going to be great. It's going to be great. I hope you're excited. Um, and let's dive straight in because I know you're busy, you've got stuff to do. So we're going to start by going over some of the different biological molecules you need to know. Now, what's a condensation reaction? Well, that is when larger biological molecules, which we call polymers, form from smaller molecules, monomers, and the, uh, the reaction produces water as a byproduct. Now, this is really important to uh, remember and very important to use those key terms like monomer, polymer, um, because the mark scheme is very precise in A-level biology and a lot of words are underlined, so you need to use those key terms um, to make sure you can get those marks. So we've done a condensation reaction. What about a hydrolysis reaction? Well, I'm glad you asked. A hydrolysis reaction breaks down large biological molecules into smaller molecules and it requires water. So it's a bit like the opposite. Now, what test do we use to detest, to uh, test for the presence of reducing sugars? It's Benedict's test. Remember, Benedict's test is one of the ones you need to know for your exam. How about starch? How do we test for the presence of starch? Now we've got to use the iodine test. So the iodine test is the test for starch and the iodine goes black. Now we're gonna talk about some cellular structures and some, uh, sorry, not cellular structures. We're talking about some structures um, of biological molecules. Let's start with cellulose. What is the structure of cellulose? It is a long chain of beta glucose molecules linked by glycosidic bonds. Remember that key term, glycosidic bond. Now let's consolidate some of what we've covered. What does the iodine test test for? It's starch. Remember, iodine test is starch. Next, we're going to talk about triglycerides. How do we form triglycerides? So they are formed by condensation reactions of one molecule of glycerol and three molecules of fatty acids. Bam! And ester bonds form between the glycerol and the fatty acids. So ester bonds is in triglycerides um, and glycosidic bonds is in cellulose. What about the structure of phospholipids? We are going through all the lipids today, honey. So a phospholipid, that's one molecule of glycerol. You heard me, one molecule of glycerol, two hydrophobic fatty acid tails. Hydrophobic hates water. Oh my God, can't stand it. One hydrophilic phosphate head group. Perfect. So I always remember the phosphate head group is hydrophilic. So it's um, positive. It's got a positive chart. It's got a charge, it's not positive, phosphate groups are negative, but it's got a charge, so it's polar. That's the key thing to remember. So the phosphate head is polar. Polar, like the North Pole or the South Pole, you pick. What is the difference between a saturated and an unsaturated fatty acid? Well, a saturated fatty acid has only single bonds between carbon atoms in the hydrocarbon chain. So remember, fatty acids have a long hydrocarbon chain tail. Whereas an unsaturated fatty acid, that has at least one double bond between the carbon atoms and the hydrocarbon chain. And this causes the chain to have like a cute little kink in it. Bam! 
What test do we use to test the presence of a lipid? We use the emulsion test. We're going through all the tests today, all the tests in preparation for your test. It's getting meta. Which part of the phospholipid is hydrophilic? Remember, it is the polar head. It is the phosphate head group, is the polar part of a phospholipid. How many fatty acids are in a phospholipid? Remember, it is two fatty acids. And where do we find phospholipids in humans? Um, and other animals and other living organisms. Remember, phospholipids form that cell membrane. Okay, it wouldn't be biological molecules without DNA. Remember, DNA nucleotide, deoxyribose sugar, phosphate group, and then an organic base, A, C, G, or T, and they are nitrogenous in that they contain nitrogen. And they pair up complementary, so A to T and C to G, and they form hydrogen bonds. I always remember there are two hydrogen bonds between A and T because it's like TA2 tattoo, so like that's how I remember it. And then CG is three, is three hydrogen bonds because G rhymes with three. That's how I remember it. Um, might be a bit, a bit more detail, but hey, it's always good to know about hydrogen bonds. Let's quickly go over the process of DNA replication. DNA helicase breaks down hydrogen bonds. Remember that enzyme and it separates the two DNA strands. Free-floating nucleotides form hydrogen bonds with complementary bases. Remember that's A to T, C to G, two hydrogen bonds with A to T and three with C to G. DNA polymerase then swoops in honey and it forms phosphodiester bonds between the nucleides between the nucleotides. So we have talked about three types of bonds. We have our ester bonds in our triglyceride, glycosidic bonds in our carbohydrates, and then we've got these nice phosphodiester bonds in our DNA nucleotide chain. Love that. Um, and it's a five prime to three prime phosphodiester linkage. And that the five prime to three prime just talks about the direction in which the DNA is um, going. And it just talks about the end of the DNA strands. You have a five prime end and a three prime end. It's to do with where the phosphate group is attached. Okay, that was fun. That was fast. How are you guys feeling? You guys ready? You ready for a little bit more? Because I am. Let's really quickly go over some protein type of cram. Um, and then we'll go over some one to two markers. So remember, we've got our primary structure, which is just the order of amino acids. What comes after primary structure? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. It's the secondary structure, which is um, we form an alpha helix or a beta peter sheet. Um, through hydrogen bonds. So hydrogen bonds um, occur, form these secondary structural elements. Um, and they fold into specific structures, and that structure could be an alpha helix or a beta pleated sheet. Love that. So those are the most common secondary structures and the ones that you need to know. The tertiary structure, that is the, second, the secondary polypeptide fold to form a tertiary three-dimensional polypeptide chain. So tertiary, we're talking 3D. Like we're in the movie theater, we've got those cute little glasses. It is a 3D structure. Interactions between the R group, which are the side chains of the amino acid, create the complex 3D structure of a protein. And the 3D structure is usually coiled or um, folded. Now, we wouldn't be anywhere without quaternary structure. Quaternary structure is when more than one polypeptide chain um, interacts together. So two 3D polypeptides come together to make one complex quaternary structure. So a good example is hemoglobin that's got four polypeptide chains, so it has a very specific quaternary structure. Now, before we move on to talk about some cells, um, just want to finish by talking the different bonds you need to know in the tertiary structure. You need to know about ionic bonds, which occur between charged R groups. You need to know about hydrogen bonds. They form in the secondary and the tertiary structure. You're also going to have some uh, disulfide bridges between cysteine amino acids, that's a covalent bond, 
Um, and there's also hydrophobic, hydrophilic interactions. Because all those hydrophobic amino acids, they are going to be hiding away from that water. They're going to be hiding in the center of that protein, honey. Okay, so next we're going over some cells and membranes, one to two markers. We are getting through this. We are getting through the topics. You guys are going to absolutely nail the exam tomorrow. Can you think of three structures present in cells of plants that aren't present in cells in animal cells? That was really badly worded. Let's do that again. Three structures present in plant cells that aren't present in animal cells. The three things I would say, chloroplasts, um, cell wall, and vacuole. You could also say starch grains if you want. How do animals store their um, carbohydrates? We use glycogen, not starch. So building on what we talked about last time, let's describe the arrangement of phospholipids in, phospholipids in a plasma membrane. They are arranged in a bilayer, always use that ketone bilayer. And the hydrophobic tails of the phospholipid point inwards and the heads that which are hydrophilic and polar point outwards. What process moves fatty acids across the plasma membrane? Now, the plasma membrane is made of lipids, so fatty acids can just diffuse through the plasma membrane. So diffusion is how fatty acids get into the membrane. Can you now compare the processes of active transport and facilitated diffusion for me? So when we, when we have a compare question, you need to talk about the similarities and differences if you want to get all the marks. So they can both, they both can involve carrier proteins, so that's a similarity, but active transport only uses carrier proteins, whereas facilitated diffusion has carrier proteins and channel proteins. So another point you want to mention is facilitated diffusion is passive, whereas active transport requires energy in the form of ATP. And the final point I would make on this is that facilitated diffusion occurs down a concentration. We are going down, 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 whereas active transport is against the concentration gradient. You, that's why you need that energy, you need that ATP, because you are breaking the rules. You are going against that concentration gradient. You're like, not today. I am going to get you where I want to get you actively. Bam. Enzymes are also what we need to talk about when we're talking about cell membranes because they are important. Um, and enzymes can be used to um, break, they can be used to hydrolyze large molecules, they can be used to break down um, parts of the membrane. So enzymes are important and they can come up in cell and membrane one to two markers. Let's talk about proteins, because proteins are hydrolyzed by endopeptidases, exopeptidases, and another type of enzyme. Can you think of another type of enzyme that breaks down proteins into amino acids? So we have endopeptidase, exopeptidase, and we also have a dipeptidase. Okay, now we've got a, we've got a little suggest question. So this is one of those higher level um, questions. So when you see suggest, don't be afraid to um, have a go and think outside of the box. Suggest why exopeptidases and endopeptidases are used as opposed to just using exopeptidases. So the reason, so endopeptidases, they hydrolyze the internal bonds, whereas exopeptidases hydrolyze bonds at the end of the protein molecules. So that's a great way to start, but what is the importance of that? Well, endopeptidase activity increases the surface area for the exopeptidases to work on. So that's why it's good to have both. Great. Um, so let's do a little bit of, um, Ex let's do some exchange one to two markers, so surface exchange. And we're starting off with an experimental question. Biologists love experiment. And let's say Grimes wants to investigate her pulse rate, okay? So she takes her pulse rate at rest. And 
how could Grimes investigate whether her result is similar to other people at her age? So this is experimental design. So she should take the resting pulse rate of a large number of other people. So you need a big sample size, common in any experiment. She should select people of a similar age um, to her, but also but from a different... So the age should be the same, but she should collect samples from individuals who have a range of, range of biometric features. So gender, ethnic group, height, weight, location. Then she should calculate a mean and the standard deviation for all the people her age. And then compare her own resting pulse rate to see if it compares with the standard deviation of the large sample. And she should also conduct a statistical test such as a T-test with a null hypothesis to establish 95% confidence intervals for her data. Okay, so that's just some, there are some key concepts in there that would apply to any experimental design question. You want a large sample, uh, make sure you get a range of biometrical features in your sample, so it's a representative sample. You want to calculate a mean, get rid of any anomalous results. Um, if it's like a, that's more appropriate if it's a laboratory experiment. Um, calculate the standard deviation. And then you want to do a statistical test, such as a t-test, where you come up with a null hypothesis and you establish 95% confidence intervals. Okay, so um, next let's do some questions on digestion and absorption. So um, just so we can cover as much as we can in this cute little episode. How are lipids digested? Well, if you want to talk about the digestion of lipids, there are very important things that you need to include in your answer. Most of it takes place in the small intestine and involves the enzyme lipase. So say the location and say the enzyme. Lipase is an enzyme that is produced in the pancreas. So that's where a lot of digestive enzymes come from. And is released into the small intestine, hydrolyzes the lipids into fatty acids and monoglycerides by breaking those ester bonds we talked about earlier. Now, you need to talk about bile salts when you're talking about the digestion of lipids because they help the they help the digestion by forming lipid droplets called micelles in a process called emulsification. And the, the micelles allow the monoglycerides and fatty acids to be absorbed through the cell membrane of the epithelial cells in the ileum. Ooh, great. Loads of good keywords in there. We love it. Okay, we're going to finish with the mutations and adaptions hypercram. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be hyper. It's going to be a cram. Mutations changes to the DNA sequence. They are almost always harmful because they interrupt the normal functioning of a protein. Addition mutations are when one or more bases are added to the sequence, and deletion mutations are when one or more bases are removed from the DNA sequence. We also have substitution mutations. Substitution mutations mutations are when one or more base a change in the DNA sequence. So just one, it's a substitution, it's a change. DNA replication, when DNA is replicated, the bases in the DNA sequences are read and copied. There can be errors in the replication process, just like me. It's not perfect. These errors are called mutations. Mutations caused by DNA replication are spontaneous. When they're going to happen? I don't know. There could be one happening now. I don't know. Mutagenic agents. They can also increase the rate at which mutations occur. Uh, mutagenic agents include chemicals like bromine and benzene and exposure to ionizing radiation and ultraviolet radiation. Wear your sun cream. Chromosome mutations. Chromosome mutations can arise spontaneously during meiosis. That's meiosis, the cell division that produces gametes. Chromosome mutations can affect the number of chromosomes in a developing zygote. This is called aneuploidy. So that was a very quick run through of some mutations. We covered the four big topics that are going to come up in paper one. We went over biological molecules, cells, substance exchange, and gen some genetic information variation. Hopefully this will just get all those juices flowing ready for that exam. To finish this podcast, we're going over a cute little stress buster. So what are you going to do to keep yourself healthy and happy during the exam season? Make sure you hang out with your friends. 
um, meow, like maybe your friend's a cat. I have loads of cat friends. Cats are great. There's a cat cafe near where I live and I love it. De-stress, maybe go for a nice little massage. Um, you know, like cats do the cute thing with the paws that's like a massage. Uh, making sure you're getting enough sleep. You want to be sleeping. You want to be wrapped up in a blanket. Maybe bring a cat with you. Find a cat. Give a cat a home. A cat is for life, not just for Christmas, even though it's not Christmas. Try and spend some time outside in the sun if the sun is there. It's quite sunny at the moment. Um, so maybe go outside. Listen to this podcast outside. Oh, my gosh. And just think of all the work you've done over the past two years. Um, and remember that you're going to be fine. Like exams can be stressful. And yes, they are important. But lots of things in life are important. Um, so you'll be fine and it'll be over soon. Best of luck with all of your studies. Thank you for joining me on this revision episode. Um, and best of luck. Hope everything goes well. Good luck for your exams. We're going to be releasing night before podcasts before every exam. And if you head on over to YouTube on every weekday, we are going to be doing live streams at 4.45 and 5.30. So make sure you subscribe. And while you're at it, rate us five stars. We're amazing. <laughs> Good luck.